This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, one of America's leading research medical schools. Icon Mount Sinai is the academic arm of the eight-hospital Mount Sinai Health System in New York City. It's consistently among the top recipients of NIH funding. Researchers at Icon Mount Sinai have made breakthrough discoveries in many fields vital to advancing the health of patients, including cancer, COVID, and long COVID, cardiology, neuroscience, and artificial intelligence. The Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. You listen to us to hear about new discoveries in science, but did you know we're a part of the American Association for the Advancement of Science? AAAS is a nonprofit publisher and a science society. When you join AAAS, you help support our mission to advance science for the benefit of all. Become a AAAS member at the silver level or above to receive a year's subscription to science and an exclusive gift. Join today by visiting AAAS.org slash join. That's A-A-A-S dot O-R-G slash join. Welcome to the Science Podcast for March 27th, 2015. I'm Suzanne Bard, filling in for Sarah Crespi. In this week's show, we have David Grimm up first with some online news stories, and then we hear from Kathy Spatz-Widham about intergenerational transmission of child abuse. And finally, we'll hear from Angela Colmoni about new advances in immunotherapy featured in this week's special issue of Science Translational Medicine. Support for the Science Podcast is provided by AAAS, the American Association for the Advancement of Science, advancing science, engineering, and innovation throughout the world for the benefit of all people. AAAS, the Science Society. Now we have David Grimm, editor for our daily news site. He's here to talk about some recent online stories. I'm Suzanne Bard. Here's a thought experiment for you. If you dug a hole all the way through the Earth and jumped in, how long would it take to fall to the other side? Well, physicists have actually calculated this hypothetical, and the previous estimate was a surprisingly paltry 42 minutes and 12 seconds. First of all, Dave, what forces would allow us to move that fast through the Earth? Well, when we're talking about traveling through the Earth, we're really talking about the forces of gravity. And what scientists have sort of traditionally assumed is that just for simplicity, the Earth's a lot like a billiard ball and it has the same density throughout. And so you've got this strength of the gravitational force, and that's pulling you very quickly towards the center. And as you approach the center, you've built up enough momentum that even as you start to slow down towards the center, you have enough momentum that you keep on going and basically keep on falling out through the other side of the planet. But now it sounds like a physics graduate student at McGill has actually decreased the estimate of 42 minutes, asserting that the previous calculation was based on an unrealistic assumption. Right. And that assumption, again, you know, being that the Earth is like a billiard ball, which we know that it's not, that there's various layers of Earth and they all have different densities and that's going to affect the pull of gravity as you fall through the Earth. So he really tried to come up with a much more accurate model of Earth for the purposes of this thought experiment. And what he found is when he plugged Earth's non-uniform density into these equations, is that actually only takes about 38 minutes, 38 minutes and 11 seconds to be precise, to fall through the planet. Okay, so this doesn't happen to us every day. We don't fall through the planet on a regular basis. Why should we care about how long it takes us to fall through the Earth? Well, you know, physicists are always interested in these thought experiments, and actually the grad student that did the study spent some time on the website Reddit answering readers' questions about physics, and he says this is surprisingly a question that comes up <laughs> a lot, and so he thought it was important to find an accurate answer to it. 
Absolutely. Next, the genes of Icelanders have gotten a lot of attention from geneticists over the years because of the relative isolation of the island. In our next story, a private company sequenced the full genome of more than 2,500 people, the largest undertaking yet for a single population. What insights into disease risk has this study yielded so far, Dave? Well, this was carried out by a company called Deco Genetics, which is one of Iceland's big biotech companies. And basically what they were trying to figure out is by looking at this broad swath of genomes, which has really never been done before, can they pick out certain genes that are responsible for diseases, perhaps genes we don't know about, other genes that may not be as useful. And they did. The first thing they found is they actually found several new disease genes, including a mutation in one gene that seems to double the risk of Alzheimer's disease. They also had some other interesting insights into human evolution. They did some calculations about how quickly the Y chromosome seems to be mutating, which gives a sense of how long ago human beings came on the scene. And they found that the last common male ancestor of all of us lived around 239,000 years ago, which is about 100,000 years more recently than scientists had thought. And did the study also give insights into human migration as well? Right. And that could also give some sense of exactly where humans came from on the planet. The other really interesting thing is that the researchers found that there appear to be a lot of genes, more than a thousand, in fact, that we seemingly can live without. They found a lot of what are so-called human knockouts, people that are carrying two non-functional copies of a gene. So essentially those genes don't work in those people and yet the people seem fine. And the researchers aren't really sure what a lot of these genes do, but they know that a small percentage of them seem to be involved in distinguishing smells, which makes sense because that's probably not as important to us today as it was for our ancestors. There may even be a couple of genes involved in hearing. So it appears that actually we're carrying a lot of genes around with us that we probably don't need. Well, that's interesting. And these human knockouts, are they at all comparable to say rodent knockouts that they use in medical research? Yeah, it's a really interesting natural experiment instead of actually going into people (laughs) and taking out their genes, which would be highly unethical like we do with rodents. This is really a natural experiment where by scanning all of these different people, you know, more than 2,000 people, that they've actually found that there actually are people that are, are natural knockouts. And now that's giving us a sense for not only what genes are important, but also what genes maybe aren't so important. Interesting, Dave. And our final story takes a look inside our guts. Researchers compared the gut microbes of Peruvian hunter-gatherers and farmers to people living in Norman, Oklahoma. This is something that scientists have wondered about for a while. All of our bodies are home to what's called the microbiome, which is all of the trillions of bacteria that live everywhere in our bodies. And especially people are interested in the bacteria that live in our gut because they seem to play a role in our diet, in our health. And one of the big questions is really how much does diet influence the composition of these bacteria? And one great way to look at that is to look at two groups with very different diets. And you don't get a whole lot more different than comparing hunter-gatherers, of which there's very few human groups left in the world that are actually traditional hunter-gatherers, to people in industrialized countries. And that's what researchers did here. They looked at a group of hunter-gatherers that belong to what's called the Matsis community, which lives in Peru. These are people that still hunt monkey, sloth, alligator, uh, and other game. They also gather wild tubers in the forests and fish in the rivers. And they compared the bacteria in their guts to those of a bunch of scientists and academics that live in Norman, Oklahoma. And what differences did they find, Dave? Well, Suzanne, they found that the guts of hunter-gatherers 
had a lot more diversity of bacteria than the people from Oklahoma. And they found several new types of bacteria, actually, that weren't known to science in the guts of the hunter-gatherers, and specifically several different strains of a bacterium known as Treponema, which is very rare in Western industrialized populations. But they seem to find some of these bacteria in hunter-gatherers. And what's really interesting about these types of bacteria is they're actually very ancient. They've only otherwise been found in hunter-gatherers in Tanzania and in non-human primates, which suggests that this may have been one of the original bacteriums to colonize human guts. Huh, okay. So it's still there in hunter-gatherers. Is there any indication that it might have health consequences if industrialized people don't have it now? Well, it's a great question. What we know is that people that are hunter-gatherers tend to suffer a lot fewer autoimmune disorders like Crohn's disease and colitis than people in more industrialized countries. And there's increasing thinking that some of this may actually be due to the composition of bacteria in our gut. So this is another strong hint that these differences in our microbiomes may actually play a critical role in human health. Fascinating. What else is on the site this week, Dave? Well, Suzanne, we've got a story about measuring Saturn's spin and how it spins a lot faster than we thought. Also a story about how to grow square snowflakes. <laughs> For Science Insider, our policy blog, we've got a story about the Large Hadron Collider and why it has hit a snag. Also a story about why the University of Minnesota has suspended enrollment in its psychiatric drug studies. So be sure to check out all these stories on the site. Thanks, Dave. Thanks, Suzanne. David Grimm is the editor for our daily online news site. I'm Suzanne Bard. You can check out the latest news in the policy blog, Science Insider, at news.sciencemag.org. Next, a goal of child abuse prevention is to get an accurate understanding of its causes. It's commonly accepted that the children of abusive parents often grow up to be abusive themselves. But data on intergenerational transmission of abuse have been mixed, and the studies have been lacking in scope. Kathy spatz Widom discusses a 30-year longitudinal study that attempts to overcome these limitations. What were some of the methodological limitations of previous studies, and in what ways does your study set out to overcome them? Suzanne, that's a really good question, and I think one of the reasons why this study is so comprehensive and will have implications for policies, we use a prospective design where we take a large group of children with documented cases of abuse and neglect, and then we follow them into the future and see what happens when they grow up. And in this case, we ask whether they have become abusive or neglectful parents. That's really a different design from what has characterized the previous studies, which are cross-sectional, where essentially there is a snapshot of people at a certain point in time where they are asked both about their own history of child abuse and neglect 
and about what they're doing now. So we have different reporters for each generation. We have both parents reporting about their behavior toward their children, and we have their offspring reporting about their parent. Another difference is that we are using a follow-up study over a long period of time, well into adulthood, not a short-term study. We're using official measures of child protection or child abuse and neglect for some of the information rather than exclusive reliance on self-reports, which sometimes have problems with accuracy of recall. Tell me a little bit more about the participants in the study. You mentioned following several generations of family members. We began this study in the late 1980s where we took children who had cases that came to the attention of the courts in a county area in the Midwest. And we also obtained a group of children who came from the same neighborhoods, went to the same schools, and were born in the same hospitals, but who didn't have these official records of abuse and neglect. And we had a large sample to start with. We had 908 abused and neglected children and 667 what we call these comparison group children. And they were ages 0 to 11 when we brought them into the study. And um, we have now been following these children who are now adults now in their late 40s and early 50s and this has provided us with an opportunity to study their parenting, and we also have obtained a sample of their offspring. So is this the longest-term study of child abuse that's been done so far? Yes. This study is unique in beginning in childhood with documented cases, with a matched comparison group of children, all of whom were followed into the future, across multiple domains of functioning, and now we have a sample of their offspring and are able to ask this question about the intergenerational transmission of child abuse and neglect. You use multiple sources of information to assess child maltreatment. Why was that, and what were these sources? In the field of child abuse and neglect, there is no what we call a gold standard or single way to assess child maltreatment. So in the case of this study, it was important to use multiple sources. One of the important ways is to use official sources drawing on the files of child protection service agencies. So this is one where we are pretty sure that the children were abused or neglected, but official reports are thought and demonstrated to only represent a small portion of all of the child abuse that's going on. So it wouldn't be a good idea to depend only on child protection service sources. So the other options are to ask parents whether they are engaging in child maltreatment and to ask offspring whether they have suffered in the context of maltreatment. So in our study, we're using these three sources so that we can overcome the biases that might be associated with 
parents not wanting to tell whether they're doing this, and children also not necessarily wanting to report that their parents are maltreating them. So by using these three sources of information, we can then get a really comprehensive picture of what is happening in terms of this intergenerational transmission. Interesting. And then when you analyze the data, what were some of the biggest surprises that revealed themselves across the generations? One of the things that was really surprising and follows, in fact, from the earlier question, is that the parents who had histories of abuse and neglect, who we expected would be abusing or neglecting their own children, did not report more child abuse than the comparison group subjects. And interestingly, the children, the offspring, reported very high rates of neglect. And in some cases, the children of the comparison group subjects reported higher rates of maltreatment than the children of parents with histories of abuse and neglect. So that was one surprising thing, but it reinforced for us the fact that we shouldn't rely only on one source of information and that the source of information makes a large difference. And having only one source, as sometimes happens in the big epidemiological surveys, may lead to incorrect conclusions. So that was one of the big surprises that we had. A second important one was that we had expected and all of the literature had led us to believe that physical abuse would be passed on from one generation to the next. And that is not what we found. So we found that it was sexual abuse and neglect for which the offspring of maltreated parents were at high risk, but not for physical abuse. So that's very interesting that you did find intergenerational transmission of child maltreatment overall, but not in the way you expected. What are some possible explanations of this? Well, we don't really know since the study was designed to answer the question about whether there was an intergenerational transmission and really we need to dig deeper to figure out why there isn't this risk for physical abuse. So one possibility is that there have been large public education efforts talking about why extreme physical punishment and abuse is not appropriate in our society. And it is possible that those public education, public health efforts have at a minimum made people more sensitive to saying that they engage in this practice. There is also some evidence, however, that even in official data across the states, that there appears to be a decreasing trend in official reports of physical abuse cases. But really, we don't know why this would be the case, but it's certainly a good thing. And what are some of the limitations of your study? One important limitation is that we cannot generalize to maltreated children whose cases do not come to the attention of the courts. So, for example, at the time that this study was begun, it was more likely that children in middle class and upper class families, if someone suspected abuse and neglect, for example, a private physician 
would not necessarily report them to the courts or to child protection services, but would try to deal with it sort of privately. So our findings can't be generalized to middle and upper class families where abuse and neglect has occurred. Secondly, we excluded adopted children from the sample largely because we couldn't trace them. We couldn't find them and study them over these years. So if a child had a history of abuse and neglect but was then adopted, we again can't talk about these findings in relation to those kids. A third issue is that these are cases from the Midwest. And it may be that cases from other parts of the country would show different patterns of these relationships. However, in our earlier work, which focused on the cycle of violence, that work was replicated in many different sites across the country. So I don't think that the geographic location is a strong limitation of the data given the prior replications of these studies. And another limitation I should say is that because of mandatory reporting laws for child abuse and neglect and because of parents' sensitivities, also because if a child had been abused and taken, for example, to a foster family, we would have had a very difficult time to find those children and interview them. So that may be a final sort of limitation. And what can professionals working in Child Protective Services learn from your study, Kathy? That's a really good question. First, I think one of the really important findings is that we all need to be careful not to assume that this relationship is inevitable or deterministic. So there has been an assumption by some people that if you as a parent were abused or neglected as a child, you will sort of automatically go on to become an abusive or neglectful parent. And we don't know yet whether the parents in this study, some of them, made a conscious decision not to perpetuate the cycle of abuse, but we certainly know that it is not inevitable. It's an increase in risk, but not inevitable. So I think that's a really important message from this work. The other important message, I think, is that we need to consider expanded prevention services and parent support within low-income communities because, for example, the offspring of these parents, 50 to 70% of them reported some form of neglect and also reported experiencing sexual abuse. So it certainly seems clear that for this entire sample that is heavily predominated by people from lower and working socioeconomic statuses, that there is a lot of behavior that's going on that is not really going to lead to healthy development of their children. The other point is that child welfare, child protection service agency staff need to be thinking about whether they are disproportionately scrutinizing families with past histories of child maltreatment, while some 
somehow overlooking instances of child abuse and neglect in the general public. And, you know, one of the questions is whether because these families are using more services, that there are more opportunities then for CPS staff to pay attention and report Or the other question is whether they are indeed truly more dysfunctional and warrant reporting. But again, this is the first study that really is able to address some of these questions. And now that we have some of these major findings, now we need to dig down deeper in the other data that we have to try to answer some of these other questions. Thanks so much for speaking with me, Kathy. Thanks, Suzanne. This has really been delightful. I'm really glad that you are producing this podcast. Kathy spatz Widem and her colleagues examine intergenerational transmission of child abuse in this week's science. Next, we have Angela Colmoni, an associate editor for Science Translational Medicine. She's here to talk about this week's special issue of the journal on immunotherapy. First of all, Angela, tell me a little bit about the mission of the journal for those who aren't familiar with it. Well, Science Translational Medicine started about five years ago, and our mission is to publish papers that help move basic science research forward to improve practice in the clinic. And I know there have been a lot of advances in immunotherapy in the last few years. Tell me a little bit about each of the papers featured in this special issue, Angela. Well, Suzanne, the five pieces in the special issue focus on how immunotherapy is being used to fight a variety of diseases, including autoimmune disease, allergy, cancer, and diseases that involve chronic inflammation, like diabetes, heart disease, and brain disorders. So let's talk about these papers, Angela. One of them covers emerging therapeutics for autoimmune diseases like lupus and rheumatoid arthritis. Tell me more about that. So autoimmune diseases happen when the body's immune system attacks its own tissues. Um, The standard therapy has been just a general immunosuppressant, which blocks the entire immune system and prevents it from responding to infections. As we learn more about the causes of autoimmunity, we can actually develop new therapies that protect the tissues that are being targeted by the autoimmune disease without shutting down the protective immune response to infections or cancer. Okay, and another paper talks about solid organ transplantation. What's this one all about? So solid organ transplantation actually has a very similar problem. If you put in an organ, the body's own immune response will attack the solid organ. Also, in the context of bone marrow transplantation, the bone marrow that you put in can actually attack the body in a process called graft-versus-host disease. So what researchers are trying to do is induce tolerance specifically to the organ without general immunosuppression. And moving on, there's a paper that addresses allergen-specific immunotherapy. So allergy and asthma are diseases, again, where the immune system is responding inappropriately to antigens from the environment and cause you to develop symptoms that you don't want to have. So the current therapy is actually the most established of immunotherapies, and we can tolerize people, for example, to pollen or dust through allergy shots. However, a lot of advances remain to be made in vaccine development, including safety, efficacy, standardization, and cost. All right, and another paper discusses adoptive cell therapy. What's the theory behind this one, Angela? What people are trying to do is harness the immune system's own cells, T-cells, to fight diseases like cancer. One of the recent advances has been to actually genetically modify these T-cells with receptors that redirect them to specific targets like tumors. So this adoptive T-cell therapy has promising results in early clinical trials, 
And actually, there are now collaborations being formed between academia and industry that are moving these adoptive T-cell therapies to treat additional cancers, chronic infection, and autoimmune disease. Okay, and finally, we move on to a paper about cancer immunotherapy. What advances are happening in this field, Angela? So cancer cells are actually kind of sneaky. They use various strategies to evade the immune system. One of the things they do is increase the expression of inhibitory receptors on the immune cells that would normally fight the cancer. So there have been a number of recent advances in checkpoint inhibitors that are FDA approved. What these drugs do is they go in and block the inhibitory receptors, allowing the immune cells to do their job and to fight off the cancers. Another form of cancer immunotherapy is taking this from the other direction. So what they're trying to do is activate the activating receptors on these T cells so they can go in and again fight the cancer. Now, when it comes to immunotherapy, many researchers are proponents of precision medicine. Can you tell me more about their argument? So precision medicine is an approach to diagnose and treat a patient's disease tailored to that individual patient, looking at their genomic profile, their environment, their lifestyle. Immunotherapy is actually at the forefront of precision medicine. So these immunotherapeutic treatments are targeted to an individual patient's genome and molecule expression. For example, a checkpoint inhibitor will only work in a cancer that expresses or inhibits a certain type of molecule. Well, these advances in immunotherapy sound really fascinating, Angela. Where can people go to read these papers? They can go to the Science Translational Medicine website at stm.sciencemag.org. Thanks so much for speaking with me, Angela. Thank you. Angela Colmoni is an associate editor for Science Translational Medicine. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions for the show, write to us at sciencepodcast at AAAS.org or tweet to us at Science Magazine. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, and many other places on the web or listen to us on the Science site. The show is a production of Science Magazine. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. I'm Suzanne Bard. On behalf of Science Magazine and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us. This week's episode is brought to you in part by Science Careers. Looking for some career advice? Wondering how to get ahead or how to strike a better work-life balance? Visit our site to read how others are doing it. Use our individual development plan tool, access topic-specific article collections, or search for an exciting new job. Science Careers, produced by Science and AAAS, is a free website full of resources to help get the most out of your career. Visit sciencecareers.org today to get started. You listen to us to hear about new discoveries in science, but did you know we're a part of the American Association for the Advancement of Science? AAAS is a nonprofit publisher and a science society. When you join AAAS, you help support our mission to advance science for the benefit of all. Become a AAAS member at the silver level or above to receive a year's subscription to science and an exclusive gift. Join today by visiting AAAS.org join. That's A-A-A-S dot O-R-G slash join.